Well, good morning. Um, for those that don't know me, I'm Bruce Krugsma. Um, and as we change the name in our church, uh, my title is changing as well to Community Life. So as the Community Life Pastor at Westgate, welcome. We are so glad you are here this morning. I'm going to open up some word of prayer uh, before we dig into God's word this morning. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us in this space. God, that you would speak through me, that your spirit would fill this place so that we can hear from you this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, a couple of things. I think it's, uh, it's been a great Labor Day weekend for me. Beautiful weather. Got to ride my motorcycle in this morning. A little chilly, um, but I don't care. It was fantastic. It's a beautiful weekend. And it's, it's Labor Day weekend, and so we are celebrating uh, Labor Day. A lot of people have Monday off, and I think it's very appropriate that we're going to take some time this morning to honor somebody, Devon Eklund. I don't think he might not be here this morning. I haven't seen him yet. They, he might be on vacation. But Devon retired this week after 12 years here at Wyzetta Free Westgate in facilities. 12 years. 12 years in facilities here. And a lot of, uh, as you walk around our facility, you see nice looking facilities. Thank you, Devon. Um, for your, your years and years. I don't remember the exact numbers, though I heard them, but in the first year alone, the number of furnaces Devon replaced here um, at church is impressive. The number of physical walls that were replaced, torn down, rebuilt, moved, adjusted, carpet, uh, the remodel of the sanctuary, the addition, all of that, Devon had a huge role in. So, And fun fact, he and Joanne retired on the same day. Um, on the same day, and, and Devon told me that she had plans for him the next day. Um, so if you see, when you see Devon next, make sure to congratulate him. Um, just We're just super excited. And we are. We're in the process of changing our name from Wyzetta Free to Westgate. Um, Mike Brinkman, uh, impact and operations pastor, said it well last week. Uh, you know, over the next couple of weeks, if it doesn't work, try Westgate. And if it doesn't work, try Wyzetta Free. Um, continue to have grace with us as we navigate those changes. I'll give you just a glimpse into it. If you open up the Westgate app, it still says Wyzetta Free on the logo. We can't change the app until the website changes. There's a little bit of chasing stuff around and Apple and Google want us to be consistent or something. And so um, just know that we're rolling those out as fast as we can. And, and thank you for your patience and, and graciousness with us as we navigate all of these, all of these changes. And so we're going to talk about what's in a name. I thought it was appropriate to take a week and go, what's in a name? What's in a name? Like as we're going through this. And so I thought I would start by explaining my name. So my name is Bruce Drugsma. If you haven't met me, one of the questions I routinely get asked is about my last name. It's pretty unique. Um, and I go, Drugsma, what? what? And, you know, you can tell they want to ask, what's up with that? But they want to do it more politely than that. Um, so I'll just tell you what's up with that. It's Frisian Dutch. From fr- my father's family is from Friesland. My mother's family is from Holland. So we are, we are a very Dutch family. Um, so the dead giveaway is the SMA at the end. For those of you that are linguists, that's a Frisian thing. So Drugsma is, is Friesland, Frisian Dutch. Um, and the opportunity before my oldest kids were born to go to Holland and visit some of my relatives. And uh, my sixth or seventh cousin, Jan, took us around. And he, we stood in the little town of Ilst 
in Holland, in Friesland. And he said, this is as far back as we can trace the name to this town of Ilst. He goes, to go farther back, um, the, the records fall apart because the Black Plague was going through Europe and they were burying people faster than they could record them. So we can't go back any farther. The records fall apart. And, and, and so it was really a unique opportunity. And so I, I had a conversation with them and found out that, yeah, there's, there's one Drugsma family. So if you meet anybody named Drugsma, yes, I'm related to them. No, I probably don't know them. <laughs> It's a big family, but there's, there's only one. Um, and so we were talking and I, I, I got to learn about my culture and my heritage and I learned that the Drugsma last name basically means from the wetland. If you know anything about Holland, a big chunk of that land was reclaimed from the sea. My family was one of those people that either lived on that land or helped reclaim that land and so that's kind of what Drugsma means, is of the wetland. My first name is Bruce, which is Scottish. I'm not Scottish at all, but my parents gave me a Scottish first name. For other people named Bruce, uh, you should know this. Um, it means of the thicket in Scottish. So I am from the thicket in the wetlands. Um, I'm Swamp Thing. Um, uh, yeah, so there you go. So I don't know what your name is or if you know the history, but I do know there's some people here who have changed their name. There are people who have changed their first name. Sarah, who's doing our slides, has a great story about that. If you want to talk to her about it, that'd be great. I know some people in our church who have changed their last name, not only when they got married, um, but other times. And sometimes couples get married and they take a different last name, not his or hers. Maybe they take a historic family name. Um, my brother-in-law and his wife merged their last names. And so a name change can be a significant thing. Here at Westgate, it's been a significant thing that's required a lot of paperwork. We've had to communicate with the Secretary of State and with the IRS and with all of our service providers, and, and it's a big deal, and it's a big deal. And, and so I thought it would be appropriate this morning to look at Scripture and to look at some name changes that happen through Scripture as we explore why. Why do people change names, and why, at times, does God change names, and why, at times, do others, and to look at it in the lens of scripture. So we're going to be jumping around this morning. I don't have one passage. We're going to be in Genesis, Daniel, and Mark. Um, so I would encourage you to follow along. We're going to start in Genesis. And, and I, I think as we study and look at these name changes, we can learn some significant lessons on name changes and why God does it. And I think our first one is this, that some name changes bring about a fresh start. Some name changes bring about a fresh start. There are times in scripture where we see a name change and it brings about a fresh start. And we often, when it comes to names, we read names in scripture and those that we have held on to throughout history, we recognize as names, Rachel, Sarah, um, Matthew, Peter. These are names we recognize because they're names we still use. Other names we don't recognize, and if we heard them today, we'd go, well, that's a little weird. Um, and there's some classic ones in the book of Hosea. Lo Ami, not loved. Wow. I wonder why that one didn't hang on, right? Um, but we read these names. This morning in my quiet time, I was reading about Jezebel, a quality name that we avoid naming our daughters. Because we read them with a 21st century mindset, sometimes even those we recognize as modern names, we miss the significance. 
And so one of our stories where I think sometimes we gloss over the meaning of the name and we miss something is the story of Jacob to Israel. Which is, because we hear Jacob and we think of, I don't know, your friend Jacob. Or we think of other people we know named Jacob. And when we hear the word Israel, we think of the country of Israel. And I think we can gloss over the name change and miss that God was doing a new thing. And he was giving somebody a fresh start. And so I want to talk about Jacob and Israel, but I want to give some backstory. Jacob is born to his father Isaac, the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, He is born to Isaac. And he is born with a twin brother, Esau. And, and scripture tells us that when they are born, Jacob comes out grasping the heel of Esau. And that's what Jacob means, one who grasps the heel. Which is another way of saying deceiver or liar. Which makes me wonder about all the people I know named Jacob. <laughs> Just going to throw that out there. But he comes out grasping the heel. Deceiver. Because that's what's implied with that. Somebody who's trying to supersede and take over. And we will see throughout his life that Jacob's life as Jacob is defined by that name. He lives it out. Jacob starts by stealing from Esau directly both his birthright and his blessing. As the firstborn, he had a right to things to carry on the family name. As the firstborn, he had the right to the blessing from the father, and Jacob steals both of those things through deception. He steals, he flees, he flees and lives with his uncle Laban in another country, and is deceived by Laban. He falls in love with Rachel, he wants to marry Rachel, Laban says, go ahead, work for me seven years, and you can marry her. He works seven years, the Bible says he thought it felt like a day. And he he gets to his wedding day and he goes through the ceremony and then discovers that his father-in-law had switched and had given him Leah instead. And he's deceived. And he ends up marrying Rachel as well. And so he continues to live in this household, in this family. He then steals, and I put it in quotes, steals herds from Laban. Now, with our modern understanding of biology, we might question whether or not his system worked. doesn't really matter whether it did or not. Jacob thought he was deceiving and stealing. See, what happened is he was, you know, he was getting in conflict with his father-in-law and people were arguing about whose sheep were whose and whose goats were whose. And he said, I'll make a deal with you. Anything that's spotted or striped, I'll keep. And anything that's not, you keep. And as he's in charge of the flocks, he goes and peels willows so that they're striped or spotted and puts them in the water so that when the animals would come and drink, he thought they would become striped and spotted. Now, God was actually at work in that and trying to bless him, um, but he was trying to do it on his own power. Um, The important thing is he thought he was deceiving and stealing. He was living that out. And that creates more conflict in his relationship. He gets to the point where his relationship with his father-in-law and his family is rough enough that he decides to sneak away in the middle of the night to flee. Another deception. Another lie. And he starts journeying back to home, to Esau, which I think, what an awful spot to be. Where you're debating, do I stay with the father-in-law that I'm in conflict with and that I've deceived Or do I go back to my brother who I stole from? So he's not in a great spot. And so we're going to pick up the story there. And and I'm going to 
read it in just a minute, and we're going to hear that he sends his, he gets to a river, and he sends his wives, his servants, his herds, his kids across the river, and he stays back. And, and if you read uh, historians and biblical scholars, you'll get a variety of opinions on why. Some would say he's doing it to, like, soften up Esau. You know, it's really hard to be mad at a guy when he's got cute kids and he's giving you lots of herds and you've run into all of them first. You know, there's some that that's what he's trying to do. There's others that say he's a coward. Go ahead. Once you're done killing all of them, you'll be too tired to kill me. Um, There's others that would point out that the spot that he stays on one side of the river is pretty close to another spot where he encountered God. And so maybe he was sending him across so that he could have a quiet moment and pursue God. Um, We don't really know, but I loved this quote. The delay, for whatever reason, led immediately to the attack that changed the course of his life and that of his descendants. He encounters God. And that's where we pick up the story in Genesis 32, starting in verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask me my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. And so as we read this story, we get a glimpse into this. He is one who has struggled with God. And what that is getting at, what is implied in that name change, is not that you will continue to struggle with God, but that instead you will let God struggle for you. Jacob's early life is marked by his physical attempts to take over both to steal and to deceive. We see him slide the stone off of the well so that Rachel's flocks can drink. We see him pursuing on his own power this attempt to overcome. And now we see God saying, no more. Not only are you no longer going to do it on your own, I am going to struggle for you. And I'm going to show you that by marking you with a physical limitation. You will no longer be able to rely on your own physical strength to overcome. You are getting a fresh start. Physical strength characterized his life. And now he's going to rely on God. The renaming of Jacob to Israel is about a life transformed with an encounter with God. It's it's about a life transformed by the gospel. We've been talking about three priorities here at Westgate, and one of those priorities is to reach our community with the gospel. We believe in the transforming power of the gospel. We believe that when people encounter God, they are changed. 
We want to reach our community with the gospel. We believe that people can come in broken and struggling in their own might, and they can encounter God and realize that they need him. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity uh, to go to my grandfather's funeral. He was 99 and eight months, which when you're 99, every month counts. That's what he told me. That's not me. That is what he told me. 99 and 8 months. Um, what a legacy. What a godly man. And the mantra that he lived his entire life by was a sinner saved by grace. And grace, for those that don't know, is unmerited, unearned favor. That's grace. Something we haven't earned. Jacob, through all of his physical struggling, didn't earn grace. God gave him grace. God renamed him. That's what we believe in the gospel. We believe that people need grace. They need to come to the end of themselves to realize that we cannot save ourselves through our own power. We need the gospel. So let me ask you this. What new name, what new start could God be calling out in you? Where are some areas where you have been struggling on your own power to do it on your own, where God is saying, put it down and let me struggle for you? Stop pretending you can do this on your own power. Where is God calling you to step out and live out the gospel in your home, your work, your school, or your community? Where do you need to live out a new identity as a sinner saved by grace? Where do you need to start fresh and say, I'm setting this down? And I'm not struggling anymore. God is struggling for me. Sometimes a new change brings about a new start. Some name changes bring about a new focus. Sometimes we see name changes in scripture and they don't give somebody a new start so much as they reorient the perspective they had. The book of Daniel starts with the country of Judah of Israel being conquered by the Babylonians. Here is, uh, for those of you that are familiar with your um, Old Testament history, Israel divides into two, Israel and Judah they become. Um, Israel doesn't have a single good king and they get hauled away into captivity pretty early. Judah kind of waffles for a while, but eventually they rebel against God enough that God sends them off into captivity with the Babylonians. Daniel chapter 1 makes it really clear why this happens. Verse 2 of Daniel chapter 1 says this, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. God is fully in control of what's going on. Israel's disobedience has caused this. Daniel 1 starts with a clear understanding. It's not the power of Nebuchadnezzar that conquers Israel. It is God who allows Nebuchadnezzar to come in in an effort to get Judah and Israel as a people to turn back to him. And so we're going to read this story from Daniel chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years. 
And after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. And so here we have a young man, a teenager, generally assumed 14 to 15, living in what I will call a a biblically bankrupt community. He is a son of some sort of nobility or leader. He is sharp, as are his friends. But they are coming at a young age from a broken community. Judah is being hauled off into captivity, not because they were so great, but because they had rejected God as their king. And so he's coming from that at a young age. The deck is stacked against him. The goal is that he will integrate and ingratiate himself into the Babylonian kingdom and culture. And so they give him new names. Now, we can, we can look at this, and I've heard some people argue when you look at it that um, that, that King Nebuchadnezzar was trying to redefine them, was trying to offend their spiritual sensibilities. Uh, we don't know that. I think it's actually more likely that he was just trying to give them culturally relevant names. But nevertheless, he renames them with Babylonian names, and that is significant. And the names he picks, Ashpenaz picks, are significant. Daniel's name in Hebrew means God is my judge, and not judge as in critic, but judge as in defender. God will judge between me and them when I act honorably or when I don't. His Babylonian name is Belteshazzar, which means Bel, which is one of their gods, protect his life. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. It's renamed Shadrach. Command of Aku is what that means in Babylonian. Aku is one of their moon gods. Command of Aku. Mishael, who is what God is, meaning there's nobody like God. Who is like him? Who is what God is? Mishael is renamed Meshach, who is what Aku is. And Azariah, Yahweh has helped, becomes Abednego, servant of Nebo. And so I want to look at this because I want to talk about how they respond. Here is a bunch of 14 and 15 year olds who have been left alone, ripped out of their community, renamed by their culture, and left alone. And I think it's really significant that the Bible immediately says, Daniel resolved. Daniel. They, they don't call him Belteshazzar. Other times, just a little tidbit when you're reading, uh, we recognize more often Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or for VeggieTales fans, Rack, Shack, and Benny. Um, we recognize those names a lot easier than their Hebrew names. Why? Because most of the time when, when we're reading in Daniel, the story is coming from the perspective of the Babylonians, not of the Hebrews. That's your little tidbit, why we know them that way. But in this case, it's significant that he says, Daniel, and what's missing is, and friends, resolved. Because when we get those name changes, 
Oftentimes, it's an opportunity for us to renew our focus on God. Whether or not Nebuchadnezzar intended to rename them to change their spiritual focus, we know it did. It changed their spiritual focus. They doubled down on what they believed. As we as a church talk about our second priority to embrace and empower the emerging generations, we are talking about young people who are defining themselves right now. And we as a church are called to embrace and empower those generations to stand up at 14 and 15. Imagine if he had been there and somebody would have said, don't worry about it, Daniel. You'll figure it out when you're older. He was given the opportunity by God because God saw something in him. And we need to remember that a new start, a new focus for a group of people can call them into things God is doing and can call out the things that God already sees. God was in complete control. We saw that already. God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come in. God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to rename them because Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, it spurred them on to a new focus. They took the next step in their faith. So what new focus could God be calling out in you? Where do you need a renewed or new focus? Where do you need to step back and say, I have been living and letting culture and letting my work and letting my school and letting my friends and letting, where are you letting other things besides God define who you are? Where do you need that renewed focus to say, my identity is not in these other things, good, bad, or ugly. My identity is in Jesus Christ. And I need that new focus. And I'm going to double down, especially when somebody else comes up and tries to define who I am. And it's outside of what God sees in me. What new focus could God be calling out in you? Where do you need to step out in obedience and faith and step into who God is calling you to be? And lastly, some name changes bring about a new identity. So I shared my real name, Bruce Drugsma. I did not share my nickname for most of my life. Literally the day I was born, I was given a nickname. I was a very large baby. I was nine pounds when I was born. My parents named me Bruce. Uh, I've shared that partly because they were looking for a name that couldn't be shortened. They weren't big fans of Andrew becoming Andy and that sort of thing. So I thought, Bruce, great, not a nickname name. And the nurse was carrying me out of the delivery room into the nursery. And my dad was in the elevator with this nurse. And she goes, wow, what a large baby. And uh, she said, what's his name? My dad said, Bruce. And she goes, ah, Bruce the Moose. <laughs> and that nickname has stuck with me. And, I, and you can call me Moose. I don't care. That's fine with me. It has stuck with me because I like it. Um, but especially in high school. In high school, I was a member of the swim team. Um, I don't have the classic swimmer body. Um, but I was on the swim team, and I was easily the biggest guy on the team. And so Moose was a natural name. And it, I was called Moose so often that my senior year, when I was a captain, there were freshmen on the team who didn't know my real name. 
They knew I was moose. And like, literally, they'd make the announcement, you know, and Bruce Rootsman is swimming in lane three. And they'd be like, who? Yeah. And, and my wife has a nickname. So I met my wife here at Wise Out of Free, Westgate, down in the basement of the church. I knew her for three years before I realized I was calling her by her nickname and not her actual name. My wife's name is actually Mary. For those of you that know her, know that she goes by Merv. I did not know that Merv wasn't her name for three years. <laughs> so our family is big into nicknames. And if you want, you can talk to my kids. All of us have nicknames. And it's up to them whether or not they want to share them with you. But, but we, we believe in them. Partly because as a, and I'm going to say retired youth pastor because that sounds cooler. Um, as a former youth pastor, I know the, the community and the intimacy that they can communicate. You are known here beyond your name. You have significance. They speak community. And so this next story from scripture, I love because I see a little bit of youth pastor in Jesus. Because Jesus gives nicknames to his disciples. And so we are going to be in Luke 6, looking at this story. This story also exists in Mark and Matthew, and I'm going to reference those because it's kind of through all three of them that we see all the nicknames and identities come out. And so we're going to see Jesus start a new identity in Luke 6 for his followers. Starting in verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And first, I want to highlight the significance of being renamed. There was, at this point in his, in his uh, ministry, Numerous people besides those 12 following Jesus around. In fact, we will know, uh, if you read on in Acts, you'll read about after Judas is dead, they replace him. They replace him with Matthias. And one of the qualifications for Matthias to replace Judas was that he had to have been with Jesus throughout his whole ministry. So it's not just the 12 who are with Jesus. Sometimes I think we get it in our mind that Jesus and his 12, and then people came and went and came and went, but those 12 were the committed ones. But we know there was others who were out there, others who were with him all the way through. But for some reason, he takes this 12 and he calls them apostles. And we hear apostle and we hear it as a church word, kind of like disciple. But it wasn't a church word. It's a real word with its own meaning. Disciple means like learner, follower. They were followers of Jesus. Apostle is sent ones. Jesus is changing their group identity. You are not just followers of me anymore. You are apostles. You are goers. You are sent ones. Now it's going to take them quite a while to live into that name. In fact, it's going to take all the way until Jesus is resurrected from the dead for them to live into that name. They will continue to screw up and act like not even disciples. Disciples would be a generous word for how they act. They are going to continue to act like individual sinners and people who have their own agendas and not like apostles until much, much later. So we see Jesus giving a name to the group and setting aside this group for a specific a specific mission. And so the question is, why does he do that? 
Well, I think the why is in the individual renames. Why does he give them nicknames? And we see Simon being come, becoming Peter, which is Kepha. We hear Peter, we hear name, the name Peter. We know people named Peter. Kepha means rock. On this rock, I will build my church. When I was in seminary, we had to read a gospel of Mark that was translated where every time they said Peter, they actually put in the word rock. It's interesting because that's when it became real to me that this wasn't a name yet. It was a nickname. You are a rock. We see in another gospel in the Mark version of this story that James and John are called, Jesus calls them sons of thunder. And so right now we have a WWF team. We have rock and we have the sons of thunder and they're performing at the pavilion next weekend, right? They're given these nicknames. And we have other names given to other people. We see Matthew in this one, but if you read, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, he's called Levi. And if you read further in the Gospel of Matthew, you see that Levi is a tax collector. So it's not really a nickname, but I think it's significant that Jesus calls him by his Hebrew name, um, Matthew. Um, and Levi as the tax collector. We also have Simon the Zealot. And just so you know, politically speaking, zealots are on this side or this side, whichever way. And tax collectors are on the opposite. Zealots were people that wanted to physically overthrow the Roman kingdom. Tax collectors wanted to profit from it. They're on opposite sides of the spectrum. So take a look at this ragtag group of misfits that Jesus called around him. Failed fishermen, uh, sons of thunder, Some people think maybe they had some anger issues, hence the nickname. Um, A tax collector and a zealot. Oh, by the way, and somebody who would eventually betray Jesus. Why does Jesus give them a new identity? He's trying to bring them together. They have so many things that could split that group apart and fragment it. Politics, worldview, politics. Uh, social view, uh, biblical worldview, all of it could fragment that group like that and does repeatedly. There's points where James and John are like coming up to Jesus like, hey, so by the way, when you become king, how about uh, we are your guys and not the others, right? We have Judas trying to bribe things. We have, we have Simon when Jesus is arrested pulling out a little sword and trying to chop off somebody's ear Um, And we're going to see this group continue to act not like apostles. When that doesn't work and they scatter and Jesus is arrested, Peter's going to start denying he knows Jesus and go so far as to curse about it. They don't look like apostles. But I want to jump ahead because it's going to be a significant change in just a couple of weeks. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, we read this. They devoted themselves, this would be the early church, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. That does not sound like a disconnected group. That sounds like biblical unity. Did their view change on some of those topics? Yes. 
Did it change on all of them? Probably not. What did change is their priority. Which brings us to our third priority, doing it together. They found unity in Jesus. They found their unity in the mission of Jesus. They probably still had, and I can guarantee they had, different perspectives on what that looks like. But they lived in unity. Last week, Kevin talked about Jesus' prayer in John 17, that they may be one as you and I are one. They lived it out. And so I want to ask you, where is God calling you to be a catalyst for unity in the body? Where is God looking at you and saying, you need to reprioritize what you prioritize? And instead of having your political view or your social view or your financial view be your guiding principle, your view of me needs to be your guiding principle first and foremost. And that is what brings this body together. We can and should still have differences of opinion, but we need to be unified in who we are following and what we are called to do as a church. We are called to follow Jesus. We are called to bring the kingdom of heaven here to earth. And that should be what unifies us. And so as we end this morning, I want to challenge you to be thinking about your name and identity as we step into our name as a church. And what new name do you need to start going by? Maybe you need to move from critic to advocate to give yourself a new start. Maybe you need to go from skeptic to optimist and give yourself a new focus. Maybe you need to go from angry to empathetic. Maybe you need to put down the old name that has been used against you by others and take on the name Jesus has given you, of his disciple, of his apostle, of his beloved. Maybe you need to put down the name that society has called you or your coworkers or your family has called you and say, I am a follower of Jesus. What new name is Jesus calling you into today? And as we as a church step into a new name, I would encourage us all to step into new identities as his followers. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for how you've been at work here at Wyzetta Free. And Lord, I look forward to where you are taking Westgate. God, as we pursue this new name, help us as individual followers of you to live out new identities as well. God, may we be defined by who you are and who you say we are and not by what others say about us. God, would you help us to stop struggling in our own might and to rely on you? God, would you help us that despite all the chaos that's around us, God, that our focus stays on you? And Lord, would you help us to stay together in unity as a a body? And God, a body not just here at Westgate, but Lord, as you pray in your prayer, God, we pray for the entire Christian world. God, that we may be unified with each other. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you for coming this morning. The Lord bless you as you go. Have a great week.